see all of you return for the bloodbath tonight. Hope you brought your armor and weaponry. There are parts of the Bible that are hard to read sometimes because the, like, just what you're reading is difficult. Like, I'm in Job right now, and I've read Job enough that I know what's going on, but it's still kind of, it can be a slog at times just because you kind of want to slap Job's friends. And, and there's a couple of times you kind of want to slap Job too, so, because, it, but it's, it's a challenging situation. And, and, you know, Lord kind of reminds me just, Will, don't be Job's friends. There's people who are hurting out there like this and don't respond like these guys. So, I mean, there's, it's all good. We all need, we need every word. It's all important. But there are parts that are harder. And then there, there are other sections that are just hard to read because they're brutal. And this chapter has a bit of that from the sense that there's a lot of God's people fighting each other and just no one's really walking with them at all. And so this isn't like a happy chapter. There's not really a lot of people walking with the Lord. In fact, we really don't see hardly any unless you count the, the prophets that are involved. None of the kings are. But it's necessary for a few reasons. When we ended chapter 16, we left off with a new dynasty in the northern kingdom. Their first king is a man named Baasha, and he wiped out Jeroboam's line. But as we saw at the very end of the chapter, he's not any better than Jeroboam, so his dynasty is also going to be short-lived. And this constant change in leadership compared with Asa, the king of Judah in the south, his 41-year reign, and he's a good king means we're not even going to really hear about the things going on in Judah, again in 1 Kings, until we get to the very last chapter of the book. So what this chapter kind of serves is it's like an intermediary chapter to introduce our main villain for the next, all the rest of the book, which is King Ahab. So kind of let's glean from this tonight, even though it's a brutal chapter of a lot of death, a lot of turmoil, civil war, Let's see what the Lord has for us as He preps us to bring onto the stage this wicked man, and then, of course, we'll meet His wonderful, lovely wife as well, Jezebel, later on in 1 Kings. So, chapter 16, verse 1, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Baasha, saying, For as much as I exalted you out of the dust and made you prince over my people Israel, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people Israel to sin, to provoke me to anger with their sins, behold, I will take away the posterity of Baasha and the posterity of his house, and will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. So it doesn't take long. We don't know exactly when the prophet comes to see Baasha here, but he only reigned for 24 years, and of course, his dynasty is going to end with his son, based on what we just read. So we don't know when it came in, but already this guy's not doing any better than Jeroboam. And so it says, then the word of the Lord came to Jehu. So because of what we read in 1 Kings 15, 34, that he, Baasha, did evil in the sight of the Lord, God sends his prophet to warn him. And it's interesting, this guy Jehu is not really mentioned a lot by Bible teachers. Like if we're going to talk about the prophets of the Lord, he's not a, a guy that usually comes up. Most of the time we'll talk about like Elijah and Elisha. But this prophet was just as influential in Israel's history. He served both kingdoms, Judah and Israel, over a 50-year period, and he boldly called out each leader's sins. His father, Hanani, was the prophet that King Asa, he was a good king, but he kind of backslid toward the end of his life. His father, Hanani, was the prophet that King Asa imprisoned because he challenged the king on his decision that we read about last week when he decided to rob the temple of God to bribe the king of Syria to relieve some pressure from his northern border. So this guy, Hanani, this guy's father, went and challenged Asa's action, and Asa didn't like it and had his dad in prison. So this guy, you know, he's seen a lot, and yet he's still out there being faithful to the Lord for well over 50 years. I think it's interesting that it mentions that this guy is the son of a prophet, and then he became a prophet. We read through church history, and certainly the church has had its problem with nepotism through the centuries. Men who had been appointed to leadership roles who weren't called but had family ties to those who were leaders or influential in the church. But even though that's a part of the church's bad part of their history, that doesn't mean that that's the case every time we see the son or daughter of a leader raised up to a position of leadership. That doesn't mean that. 
I have seen churches split because they think it's wrong for a son to become the next pastor or to take over a leadership role in the missions ministry or the worship ministry. And I would say that kind of jealousy is just as evil as nepotism, just as evil. In fact, God condemns these kind of critiques in Scripture when they were brought against like Moses and Aaron, when they said, this is a family affair. You take too much upon yourselves. And the Lord is the one who stepped in and he challenged those who had challenged Moses and Aaron. Jehu is just one of the many examples in Scripture of children who followed in their parents' call to ministry. A person's lineage should never matter when deciding who is to take a leader's place. If they're the one God calls, then that's all that should matter. Well, it says that the word of the Lord came to Jehu against Baasha, and it's never good when God's opposed to you, so this is not a happy message. Verse 2, For as much as I exalted you out of the dust and made you prince over my people Israel. And then colon, which means, or semicolon, which means he prophet paused. He wanted that thought to sink in. This phrase, out of the dust, sometimes it's used to describe an abundance of offspring. Like you've got, you know, dust is easy to find. So if you've got a lot of kids, you know, they're easy to see. That's why this word was used for that. But oftentimes it's used to refer to a low standing in society. So the Lord could be saying that, Baasha, you were nobody. Like you were just a common person. You didn't, there was no reason for you to be king except for the fact that I raised you up. And that's something that Baasha should have considered, that it was a work of God's grace. And God's grace is always designed to move us to gratitude and obedience. Like the minute I begin to think, well, God's used me because this, I'm so this or I'm so that, that's, that's a that's a quick way to basically not be used of God anymore. <laughs> because the, the, when God uses us, we should be blown away. Like, why would you pick me? Or why would you use me that way? Or Lord, why would you intervene in this situation to, to let me be, you know, kind of a, a vessel that you could work in someone's life through? It's designed to move us to gratitude and obedience. But Baasha, he ran roughshod over God's grace. I've had a very few a few very shameful moments in my life when I realized how I had run roughshod over God's grace, how God had been so good to me and deserved so much better than I was giving Him. Don't do that. Don't do that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, Paul, when he is, he's kind of giving a defense of his ministry, but then he starts to kind of turn it back to the Corinthians And he says in 2 Corinthians 6, 1, he says, we then as workers together with him beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. For he says, I have heard you, and he's quoting the Old Testament here, I have heard you in the time accepted and in the day of salvation I have succored you or helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We quote that verse all the time when we're telling somebody, well, don't wait to get saved. But the context isn't about getting saved. The context is about the work God is doing through us as we serve Him. The concept here is that to be used of God, sorry, I've got something in my eye. The concept here is that when God uses us, it's not something that we earn. It's not something that He owes us. It's not like, well, you know, I did, I did 42 hours of studying for this Bible study, so God, you've got to show up. You owe me. No, He doesn't. It's all a work of His grace. And so, He says, we don't want you to receive the grace of God in vain. The Lord says, I'm here to help. I'm here to move. I've got all the power you need. I've got all the might you need. Just call out to me. And so he says, live in such a way, verse 3, giving no offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed. Like, I don't want people to talk bad about the Lord because I'm carnal or I'm in the flesh. I don't want people to think bad about the Lord or think that God's not special because I get up here and, and give a Bible study that came out of my own head. I want the hard work and the time that put in to be accompanied by the fact that the Lord shows up, that He anoints that conversation or that discipleship time with my son or my daughter or a time of teaching in the Word. I don't want to receive God's grace in vain. Baasha did. God gave him so much, and he never did anything with it. And so because of that, God says, I'm going to judge you just like I judged Jeroboam. Look at verse 3 in 1 Kings 16. Verse 3, he says, Behold, I will take away, the prophet says this, 
Behold, I will take away the posterity of Baasha and the posterity of his house, and I will make, his, make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Take away, it means what you think. It means I'm going to destroy it. It means to cause something to no longer exist. He says, I'm going to wipe you guys out. There'll be no line of Baasha anymore. All of your descendants will be wiped out. And then in verse 4, he explains, and they're not just going to be, they fell asleep and died. Verse 4, him that dies of Baasha in the city shall the dogs eat, and him that dies of his in the fields shall the birds of the air eat. So they're going to not die natural deaths. They're going to die violent deaths. Verse 5, now we get Baasha's legacy. The writer sums it up for us. Now the rest of the acts of Baasha and what he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So... Baasha slept with his fathers, and he was buried in Terzah, that's the capital, and Elah, his son, reigned in his stead. And also by the hand of the prophet Jehu, the son of Hanani, came the word of the Lord against Baasha and against his house, even for all the evil that he did in the sight of the Lord, and provoking him to anger with the work of his hands. What was the provoking? In being like the house of Jeroboam, and because he killed him. He didn't kill Jeroboam, but he wiped out Jeroboam's line. It was fascinating here because it mentions in verse 5, the only thing good it mentions, it says, now the rest of the acts that he did and his might, aren't they written in this other book? His might refers to his power as a king, the awe that he, that he was held in as a king. Baasha had power. He had the awe of the people, but God was opposed to him. So how much did 22 years of awe and power matter when compared to an eternity of judgment? Not like a trickle, not very much at all. And God, even though Baish was an instrument of God's judgment, murdering all of Jeroboam's family was not something God approved of. Doesn't mean that God was okay with his rebellion and his murderous acts. I think, <laughs> I might get in trouble for this. I think in our day and age, if somebody like a Baasha came about, we'd be like, yes, thank you. Take him out. Tired of this nonsense. Be wary of praising rebels or rebel groups who oppose bad government. If you're a student of history, you know that what I'm about to say is true, that it's almost unheard of in history to find good men, good men who overthrew bad men, but didn't use tyranny themselves to accomplish it. Almost impossible. God is never okay with wickedness, even when it's a lesser wickedness than the one they deposed. Well, After Baasha died, that's when things got really bloody in Israel. Look at verse 8. In the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, began Elah, the son of Baasha, to reign over Israel in Terzah, two years, short reign, and here's why. And his servant Zimri, captain of half his chariots, conspired against him as he was in Terzah, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, steward of his house in Terzah. And Zimri went in and smote him and killed him in the 20th and 7th year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. So this guy, Zimri, is an officer. That's what the word servant there means. He's one of his cabinet members. He's a high-ranking military leader. Tells us that he was over half the chariots. So he's not the general of the army. He's a a lesser military officer, but still a pretty important one, high-ranking one. And so while they were in Terza, in the capital city, it says that he assassinated him while he was drinking himself drunk in his steward's house. The guy who managed the palace had him over for dinner and got him drunk. Proverbs 31 verses 4 and 5 is advice from a mom to her son who's about to be king. It's to Solomon from Bathsheba. And it's probably mostly well known for the Proverbs 31 woman. But there's some really important verses before we even get to the Proverbs 31 woman and it's advice for kings. In Proverbs 31, verses 4 and 5, Bathsheba tells her son Solomon, It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it's a pen name for Solomon, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. The Bible repeatedly says that alcohol is not for government leaders because they always need to have their full wits about them. I think it's a horrible statement about your life that the only thing someone writes about you, this King Elah, the only thing the writer finds significant about him is that he was drunk when he was assassinated. 
That's it. What's your legacy in life? I was wasted when I got killed, man. Bible doesn't tell us why he was drunk. It might have been his first time. But how many moral failures does it take to put you in danger? One. One. There are way too many stories in life every day. The news, people you're in contact with. There are way too many stories every day of someone who lost their life because they were doing something morally questionable, sometimes for the first time. It just takes once, which is why you should just stay away. (laughs) Don't put yourself in a morally questionable situation. Well, the next seven days after the assassination were bloody. Verse 11, it came to pass when he began to reign, as soon as he sat on his throne, that he slew all the house of Baasha. He left not one that urinates against the wall, neither of his kinsfolks nor of his friends. Zimri executed not just every male family member, but that's what that word means, urinates against the wall. It means a male. The Bible is very distinct and very clear about how you determine the two genders. I heard an interesting argument. I'm not saying it ends all arguments, but someone asked another person on the street, they said, I was watching a video of this, and they said, you know, how many genders are there? And the guy kind of was a little comfortable at first. He's like, well, that's a hard question to answer these days. But then he, he said, matter of fact, he goes, well, I think of it this way. If somebody is like an archaeologist or somebody is digging up bones 100 years from now, they're going to identify you as either male or female. It's, I mean, that's it. They're not, they're not going to identify and go, well, that's a transgendered male. They're going to go, that's a male or a female. There's only two. And the Bible makes it clear what a man is, and it makes it clear what a woman is. So... It's a bit of a crass phrase, but they probably didn't use that word that way back then in a crass way, whereas we, I didn't say the real word the King James says, because it is a crass word in our culture. I know some pastors are like, yeah, I get to say the word for donkey, you know, and I'm, I'm not one of those, so I don't like to read those words, because they are crass and a bit offensive in our culture, but it wasn't when they would word it that way in that culture, so when the King James is written, it was just a matter-of-fact way of explaining things. So he wipes out every male, but not just the family, any male that was a friend. Like if you were associated with Elah, you were dead. You were a male, you were dead. And it says, thus did Zimri destroy, verse 12, all the house of Baasha according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Baasha by Jehu the prophet. Now God didn't tell Zimri to kill Elah's family and friends. That's not what that means. But Zimri's actions fulfilled God's judgment on Baasha's line. None of them came to the grave by a natural death. None of them survived. Verse 13, God did this, or uh, God allowed this for all the sins of Baasha and the sins of Elah, his son, by which they sinned and by which they made Israel to sin in provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their vanities. Now, the rest of the acts of Elah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? That's why I said the only thing significant it said is he was drunk when he was killed. This word vanities is interesting. They provoked the Lord of Israel, the God of Israel to anger with their vanities. This word is a, it means useless things or empty things, but it's almost like a synonym for idols. Like it's often used in the Bible just to refer to idols. So, What provoked God to anger was the idolatry that was going on. And the reason that this word vanities is often used in the Bible to describe idols is because it makes no sense to worship something that isn't real and can't help. It makes no sense. And that's what idols are. They're not real. They're empty and useless things. So when Jeroboam, we're going way back to the first king of Israel, when he made those golden bulls and he set up the worship centers in Bethel and Dan and he announced, behold, your gods, O Israel, that brought you up out of Egypt, that was an empty, useless announcement. And it angered the Lord because God isn't empty or useless. God wanted to work in their lives. He wanted to bless them. But instead, they were turned to something useless, and now he has to discipline them or judge them. And so that would keep him from blessing them and working in their lives. And so it does really bring up an important 
question that this chapter is constantly asking, which is this, what are you worshiping? What are you worshiping? What are you devoting your life to? All of these kings were devoting their life to something empty and useless. What are you devoting your life to? What are you worshiping? Is it an empty, useless thing, or is it the Lord? Well, Zimri's rebellion, remember, he's only in charge of half the chariots. So it didn't include the other half of the chariots and the rest of Israel's army. They'd been away during his coup, and so when they get word about what he's done, they decide, they, we don't want him to be king, we want someone else to be our new king. Verse 15, so in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, again, that's, remember I told you, they're giving that just so we can know where we're at in the timeline. In the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, did Zimri reign, really long, long reign for this guy, seven days in Terza. Told you, it was a bloodbath. And the people were in camp, so while he's reigning and this coup takes place, and then he's got seven days in the throne, it says the people, so the rest of the army, was encamped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. And the people that were encamped at this city trying to take it from the Philistines, when they heard say, Zimri has conspired and has also slain the king, wherefore all Israel made Omri the captain of the army, the captain of the host, king over Israel that day in the camp. So, what's going on here is that, if you remember back to chapter, earlier chapters, Jeroboam, the first king of Israel's son, he was assassinated while trying to recover the city of Gibbethon from the Philistines. Clearly, that campaign failed because they're trying to do it again. But while they're trying to do it again, that's what provokes Zimri to go, I can assassinate the king and be king. I've got half my chariots here. I've got a large enough military support that I can, I can set myself up and I can establish my authority and, and I can win the throne. Well, <laughs> while Zimri may have been a high-ranking char- chariot cap- captain, Omri was the general. Zimri seriously miscalculated who the people would turn to when they found out what he did. And so, in verse 17, it says, Omri went up, he lifts the siege off this Philistine city. He went up from Gibbethon and all Israel with him, and they besieged Terzah. So now you've got Israelis fighting against Israelis. So you've got all the army, well, most of the army is camped against, is laying siege to Terzah. And I don't know if you have thought about this, but like chariots are not very good in a scrap when you're defending a wall. So like the soldiers he has are not skilled for that. Their expertise is not there. Their equipment's not there. This is not going to go well for them, and it doesn't. Verse 18, and it came to pass when Zimri saw that the city was taken, when it was captured, that he went into the palace of the king's house, and he burnt the house over him with fire and died. I'm not sure how dying in a fire would be better than like getting executed for treason or a coup, but this shows just how much of a dumpster fire this guy's reign was. Now, such a short siege, even though they were not particularly equipped for this kind of fight, leads me to believe that some of those inside the city refused to defend Zimri. And that would also explain why he would commit suicide like this. I don't know if he became distraught or maybe he just said, if I can't have the palace, nobody can, and burn it all down. I don't know. Either way, things went very differently than he had planned. Now, I realize we have a few instances in our current history of people who plan to do something wicked and they account for the price that has to be paid. They take their own life. But most people don't plan to do something wicked and include paying for the consequences in their plans. Most of us, if we decide to do something wicked, we've planned that things are going to work out great for us after we do it. But even a mass murderer who commits suicide ends up with more than they bargained for because on the other side is the eternal fires of judgment. Jesus spoke about hell with frequency because it's a real destination for those who refuse to follow the Lord. And a healthy view of hell protects me from making awful decisions like this. How many lives were destroyed in Zimri's lust for the throne? Because it's not going to be over yet. There's going to be a civil war that follows. 
How many lives might be saved each day if our culture had a very healthy view of hell? I'm not saying that our lives should be motivated by fear, but it's never a bad thing when you get saved, like you first get saved because you don't want to go to hell. I remember when I heard the gospel clearly for the first time in a church setting, and I knew I was lost. I knew I was going to hell. I knew I was lost. Like, there's no way I was a good person. There's no way that I was going to get into heaven on the basis of my good works. And that terrified me. I was happy to run to relief. I was happy to find an answer that would provide rescue from that very sure destiny I knew I was headed for. And the concept of the fact that hell exists and that my actions do matter has often kept me from really bad decisions. Clearly, Zimri did not have that in mind. And so it says in verse 19 that God let him die for, verse 19, the sins which he sinned in doing evil in the sight of the Lord, in walking in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin which he did to make Israel a sin. We'll come back to that in a second. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and his treason that he wrought, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? For his sins is what it says, plural. God did this to him, or allowed this to happen, that he died, he was judged, for his sins which he sinned in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. So murdering the king, his family, and friends are included in this, but God mentions that his primary problem is that as king, he maintained that bull worship system that Jeroboam instituted. Now, some might object, well, wait a second, Will, he only had seven days to reverse that, and probably most of those days, or at least some of them, were spent defending a siege. How could God hold him accountable for that? Well, my question would be is, why would it need to take more than one day? How many days does it take to make a new proclamation? I think what this shows us that God disciplines this guy, judges this guy, and calls what he did sin, even though it was only for seven days that he didn't dismantle or at least make a proclamation to dismantle the golden bull worship system that Jeroboam had set up. I think it shows us just how serious God takes idolatry, don't you? Like, seven, seven days, Lord. I mean, I mean, I was planning to do it. You know, just give me a couple weeks. Lord's like, this is how serious I look at idolatry. Like, seven days is like seven days too long. And this is how destructive idolatry is to people. That God equates the ugliness of idolatry to the ugliness of mass murder and tyranny. Because he lists both of those sins together here. Again, this chapter is asking us the question, what are you worshiping? What are you devoting your life to? Is it the pursuit of position? Is it the pursuit of position and the willingness to step on others to get it? Or to maybe put your family at a lower place of, of importance? What is it that you're devoting your life to? Is it those things or is it the Lord? Well, I mentioned earlier that the bloodshed did not end with Zimri's death. Some of those who served under Zimri did not want Omri to be their next king. So a civil war breaks out between the two military factions. Verse 21, then were the people of Israel divided into two parts. Half of the people followed this other guy, Tibni, the son of Ginnath, to make him king, and then half followed Omri. But the people that followed Omri prevailed against, literally conquered the people that followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath. So Tibni died and Omri reigned. The Bible is completely silent about all the details of this civil war, except to tell us that it lasted four years. It tells us that later on in the chapter. So, I mean, I don't know about you, but a four-year civil war breaks out in our country, there's going to be a lot of dead people, a lot of loss of life. So, this surely produced a lot of loss of life. We see Tibni at least lost his life. But it, all it really tells us is that Omri's faction came out on top. And so verse 23, we get to his reign. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, began Omri to reign over Israel 12 years. Six years he reigned in Terzah, 
The other six years he reigned in a different city, which it tells us about in verse 24. And he bought the hill of Samaria of Shemer for two talents of silver, and he built on the hill, and he called the name of the city which he built after the name of Shemer, owner of the hill. What did he call it? Shemaria. Samaria, which comes from this guy's name. So the 31st year of Asa's reign would be the last quarter of his reign over Judah. That's when Omri became king over Israel. He only reigned for six years in Terza because he moved the capital to this new city, Samaria, for the final six years. It took six years to build, that's why. Samaria is a few miles west of Terza, the current capital. Samaria rises about 300 feet above the surrounding fertile valleys. The site provided an ideal location for what, when he built his city, his palace would become a nearly impregnable city. It remained the capital until Assyria conquered the northern kingdom 150 years later. In fact, the city Samaria will become so important that the northern kingdom eventually will just be called Samaria. In fact, it doesn't, isn't called Israel a lot of times. It's just called Samaria. The name Samaritan is more complex than just saying northern Israelite, but it does come from their association with this city and with the northern kingdom. And sadly, while Omri did bring stability and even prosperity economically to the northern kingdom, he also was not devoted to the Lord. Look at verse 25. But Omri wrought evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all that were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sin wherewith he made Israel to sin to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger with their vanities." Now, how could he do worse than Jeroboam and all the other kings? Well, we'll read about that in the end of the chapter. But suffice it to say now, he made the alliance with Ethbaal, king of Tyre and Sidon, and that alliance was sealed by marrying his son Ahab to Ethbaal's daughter, Jezebel. His treaty or alliance with Tyre and Sidon gave birth to the union that becomes our main villains for the rest of First Kings, Ahab and Jezebel. And so for that, God says, he did worse. In addition to that, he did maintain the bull worship system that Jeroboam set up, and that provoked the Lord to anger as well. Verse 27 and 28, his legacy wasn't long, only 12 years, but it says, now the rest of the acts of, which he, of Omri, which he did, and his might that he showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So... Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab his son reigned in his stead. I know Ahab is the, probably the king of the north that we know the most, like he's the most famous to Christians or people who study the Bible, but Omri is the most famous northern king in history. Writings found in other nations referred to the northern kingdom as the house of Omri even after his dynasty was wiped out. So even though Ahab gets more time in the Bible, history gives more attention to Omri. He was a capable military leader, and he was a capable government organizer, and as a result, the northern kingdom prospered under his leadership. And yet again, the writer just sums all of that up, his whole legacy of all that he accomplished in one phrase, his might. You want to learn about all his might? Go read the Chronicles of the Kings. I'm not going to bother any time with that, because to the writer... None of that mattered if Omri wasn't devoted to the Lord. None of it mattered. Wicked men can lead a nation into prosperity and freedom and opportunity. They just need to be wise in how they govern. But none of that impresses the Lord. Proverbs 14.34 is a simple verse that clearly applies to all nations, including ours. And it says this, righteousness exalts a nation, but wickedness is a reproach to any people. Proverbs 14, 34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. I love what one commentator said about this verse. He says, this verse does not say that our past righteousness will exalt us today or tomorrow, nor does it say that our current sin will one day in the distant future be a reproach. 
It says that the righteousness of a nation exalts now, and the sin of a nation is a reproach now. There is no middle ground. A nation is either one or the other. It cannot be both. That word reproach, it means a shameful or wicked standing. Sin is, gives a shameful or a wicked standing before God to any people. This same word for reproach is used to describe incest in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 17. I think all of us would look at incest and say, that's a shameful, wicked thing. It would give us a shameful, wicked standing with God. But the Lord says that wickedness in a nation, sin in a nation, does the same exact thing. Israel had a good past under David, and even in the early days of Solomon, But Omri led the nation to a shameful standing before God. And so all the prosperity, all the opportunity, and all the peace that he brought counted very little with the Lord. So what does count with God? Righteousness exalts a nation. The word righteousness means moral virtue, justice, or being right with the Lord. If a nation wants God's approval, it needs to embrace moral virtue, justice, and being right with God. Anything short of that is wickedness, and it withholds God's blessing. And so I would say to you, please keep that in mind when you pray for our nation and for its leaders. We need men and women with moral virtue, good character, not just good economics, not just good platforms or what we think is good for our nation. We need people of good virtue, good moral character, and those who act with justice or justly toward people. That is the only thing that will exalt our nation in its standing with God. Well, the last sentence comes with a bit of an ominous dun-dun-dun. Because in verse 28 it says, and Ahab his son reigned in his place. Verse 29, and in the thirty and eighth year, so Asa at this point is an old man, he's quite sickly at this point. In the thirty-eighth year of King Asa, or Asa king of Judah began Ahab the son of Omri to reign over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria for twenty-two years. He is the first son of a northern king that will reign for more more than two years. So the bloodbath stops for a bit. But then he created his own, which we'll get to in the later chapters. It says here, verse 30, and Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. And it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Zidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshiped him. The word there took is very personal. In other words, while his father Omri may have made the marriage part of the alliance with Ethbal, it was Ahab who sought the marriage. When he would go and they would get together with whoever the retinue was for, from Tyre and Sidon, he would hang out with Jezebel. He wanted to be with her. And so when all the treating was, you know, alliance was being formed, he told his dad, I want the treaty to be, you're, I'm going to have to marry somebody for this treaty. I want her. He took her. And in addition to that, he went and served Baal. The word Baal, it means Lord or Master. It's a mockery of the Lord. He is the Canaanite storm god and the bringer of rain. He is the chief of the Canaanite pantheon. Now, Baal can be a little confusing at times when you read your Bible because let me maybe give you an example. When I was in Peru, on a mission trip, we went to go visit the Inquisition Museum they have there. And in the Inquisition Museum, you go through and you see all the horrible things that happened that the church, the Catholic Church did to people who were genuine believers most of the time. But in there, they had a whole section of just little statues to Mary. And they would describe and say, well, this is the Mary of and then of a certain city. And I finally raised my hand because I was so confused. I was like, why did, like, why did they have to have a priest like, dedicate this, this statue to them? Like, why is it the Mary of this? Why is it not just all Mary? And the tour guide explained to me and said, well, you need to understand something. That became their Mary. 
Like it was a Mary that was specially dedicated to them that had been given special attributes that when they, they prayed to her or worshiped her, that she would do certain things for them. And I was like, what? So like it was like their own like personal like little idol God that they got. And, and she was like, well, maybe you shouldn't put it that way in a Catholic church. Yeah, but yeah. And I was like, okay. It started to make a little bit more sense. Well, Baal is kind of like that. Each city in the region had their own version of Baal. A lot of times it would be Baal-something, Baal-Peor, Baal-Gaza or something like that. So the deity would go by different names in different places, and sometimes they would think of him in different ways, even though he was still the chief god. There were special things that he did for them in that area. Like, for example, you remember, we'll get to later on when I think it's the Syrian king, and he's like, their gods are the gods, you know, Jehovah's the god of the, va- of the hills, so we need to fight him in the valley. But that's how they thought of things, like, like Baal so-and-so, well, he'll protect us because we have lots of valleys. And so the name would say something about their valleys. So the first time that Israel got involved in Baal worship was before they even entered the promised land. Baal Peor, or Peor's version of Baal, was when Balaam was trying to curse Israel and the Lord wouldn't let him. And so he was really upset because he didn't get the job. He didn't get paid since he didn't curse him. And so he came up with another idea. He goes, wait a second, I can still get paid. Here's what you need to do. I can't curse him, but you can get God to judge him if you get them to sin. Get them to worship your gods. Get them to sleep with your women and commit fornication with them. And then God will judge them. You don't need me to curse them. And that's what Baal Peor was. The priestesses came into the camp of Israel and invited the men over, said, why don't you come to our special feasts and everything? And they caused them or tempted them and seduced them into idolatry and fornication. So Baal, in all of his forms, was a constant temptation for Israelites from the time of the judges all the way up to the time of the kings. But no king, no king up to that point had adopted him as his god. Even though Solomon built pagan temples for his wives and even attended the services, he never endorsed those gods personally. And even though Jeroboam built the golden bulls, he still called them Jehovah. Ahab changes all that. In verse 32, it says, He reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. So he builds this altar so he and other Israelis can make legitimate sacrifices to Baal. People may have done this in the privacy of their homes, and now Ahab made it a legitimate religion, a legitimate form of worship in Israel. And then he built a grove. Asherah, the grove refers to Asherah, a goddess, Canaanite goddess. She is Baal's wife. The two deities went hand in hand. So what we now have in the nation of Israel is three idolatrous but legitimate ways to worship. Ahab made that possible. And so can you see why Ahab provoked God to anger more than any of his predecessors? Here's the sad part. Ahab thought in his mind, well, I'm still following the Lord too. He's like, yeah, I worship Baal and he's my God, but I also worship the Lord. What's crazy about Ahab, we'll read about it, but like he, he has prophets of the Lord that he calls up that work for him. He goes to spiritual events. He consults with people of the Lord. In his mind, like if you sat out with Ahab and said, Ahab, you're an idolater, he'd go, no, I worship the Lord. I go to him on Saturday and on Sunday I go worship Paul. In his mind, he conceived of himself as a true Israelite, true worshiper of the Lord. What's sad about that is Well, Ahab may have thought in his mind that he still followed the Lord. Jesus said, that's not possible. It's not possible to have two masters like this. We read it in our scripture reading, but in Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says this. He says, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one or be loyal to the one and despise the other. And then Jesus says, you can't serve God and mammon. Mammon was another idol in in Israel's region. He's talking not just about money, which Mammon was the god of pleasure, the god of prosperity, the god of business, the god of, of money. But he's talking about two gods there. You can't serve the Lord and another god. 
Ahab ended up despising the Lord's prophets and the Lord's word. And in reality, he only served one master, and that was Baal. And so, again, this chapter is asking us some important questions. You know, I ask you tonight, do you find yourself being frustrated with God and what he wants for your life or what he's asking you to do? Do you find yourself frustrated with that at times? I don't want to be in this marriage, God, or I don't want to be in this job, or I don't, you know, don't want to be in this church. Hope no one's saying that. But like, are you frustrated with God and what he wants for your life? Or do you, you delight in him and in his word? Because if you're not delighting in his word and what he wants for you, it's possible there's another master in your life. A ball of your own that you've erected. And if that's the case, the only solution for a Baal or a grove is to get rid of it. You know, I have had things in my life where the Lord has just said, Will, this is, it's a rival to me, and it's just not helping. <laughs> there are times when I'm calling out to you and your, your loyalty feels tested, and even sometimes you might be grumpy about giving in to me because it means you don't get to do this. The only solution for a ball or a grove is to get rid of it. Verse 34 has an interesting thought that the writer just pops in here at the end. Remember, the whole theme of 1 Kings is covenants and character. And so the writer here slips in an event that occurred during Ahab's reign to remind us that God keeps his word. He's constantly giving us these reminders of God's character, and he does it with this little blurb right here at the end. He says, in his days, Ahab's days, during his reign, did Hiel, the Bethelite, build Jericho. He laid the foundation thereof in Abiram, or literally at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn. And he set up the gates thereof in or at the cost of his youngest son, Sejub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. What's this word of the Lord that Joshua spoke? We got to go back like 400, 500 years to find out. So look at Joshua 6.26 with me. Give a little context here. Israel defeated Jericho miraculously, and God said, listen, this is kind of like going to be your tithe to me of all the cities you're going to take. Jericho, no one takes any, any loot from the city. The whole city is going to be destroyed, and it's going to be devoted to me. And so most of Israelite, oh, the Israelites obeyed. But remember, there was that one dude who didn't? His name is just, it was in my head, now it's gone. Uh, Achan, that's right, that's right, because he was Achan after God was done with him. <laughs> Who laughed that hard? Because you're my best friend right now. Because <laughs> that's an awful joke. <laughs> but, but, but thank you. <laughs> Achan took something. He took, I think it was a, a Babylonian like coat of armor or, or a nice coat or something. And I think he took something else, some bars of precious metal. And he hid it. And when they went to go fight, you know, God judged the nation. Well, and then he had to be dealt with. Well, before that all occurred, or Joshua knew that all occurred, Joshua, when the city was defeated and they all left, it says in 626 that Joshua adjured them at the time, warned them at that time, told all the people of Israel, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord that rises up and builds this city Jericho. He will lay the foundation at the cost of his firstborn, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. He prophesied, predicted, like 500 years before it happened, he says, the guy that decides to defy the Lord and to rebuild this city, he's going to lose his oldest son when he builds the foundation, and his youngest son when he builds the gates. Well, that's exactly what happened to this guy, Hiel. Now, people were allowed to live in the region of Jericho. God gave the region of Jericho as a city to the tribe of Benjamin. So it had been inhabited prior to this, but no one had dared rebuild the walls in defiance of God's declaration that the old city of Jericho be devoted to destruction. No one had dared defy God's curse. Well, Hiel, it tells us, is a Bethelite. So he's from Bethel, where one of the bull worship centers was set up. So whether... He did this at Ahab's instigation, or it was his own desire for wealth and power. He defied God's curse, and it cost him all his sons. 
what blows me away is that after his first son died, like Joshua predicted, like, it's not like he didn't have access to the scriptures somewhere. After his first son died, like Joshua predicted, he just kept building. I don't know if he didn't know the scripture or he didn't care what God said, but either reason was a failure that cost him a ton to be ignorant because he wouldn't take the time to know the word of God or to defy it. And I I think this is an important thing that slipped in here because too often we sacrifice things that are truly important because we want something badly enough to disobey God. It doesn't matter whether we refuse to take the time to know what God says in His Word or we ignore His Word or defy His Word when when we do know it. It's never worth it because God never changes. He isn't going to ignore his promises or his warnings because 450 years have gone by. And unfortunately, I hear, I've been hearing this since I was a young Christian in the church, I hear people who say, well, that was back then. God doesn't see it that way anymore. I just don't see that as being consistent with anything I see in Scripture. I am the Lord, I change not. That's his declaration of himself. He remains the same, and He is reliable to keep His Word, both the words of promise and blessing and the words of promise of judgment. He is reliable with both. His character doesn't change, and He keeps His covenants. So, there's good warnings for us there, but there's also good encouragement when we read His promises. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord, you asked this question, what are we devoting our life to all throughout this chapter through looking at these, the lives of these other men who were devoted to so many things besides you, wicked things. So, Lord, whether it's wicked things or just things that aren't worthy of our devotion, we want to be those who are devoted to you. Lord, you alone, devoted to you. And thereby, Lord, then we can be devoted to the things that we should be devoted to, our families, our spouse our brothers and sisters in Christ, good work ethic, godly character, being a witness. Lord, help us to evaluate and if maybe there's something in our life that is a a Baal or a grove or some idol in our life, some vanity in our life that's not worth devoting our lives to. Or put your finger on that tonight. Or if you already have, put your finger on that. You know, as Maybe my brothers and sisters tonight, there might be some of them who are saying, Lord, I'm sorry, I'd, I don't want that in my life anymore. I want to cut down that, that idol, that grove, that Asherah pole. I want, to, I want to knock down that ball idol in my life. Lord, as they're doing that, would you strengthen them for the challenges ahead as they might be tempted to go back to that? Would you equip them to move forward in their devotion to you? Bless us all, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.